0: If you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms, we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 this morning. Uh, you might be getting a little nervous, I said last week we will not be going through all 150 Psalms, and here we are doing Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but let me just reassure you, we are not doing one, all 150 Psalms. Uh, next week I will be doing Psalm 13, and the week after that Bob will be taking up Psalm 8, so we will be bouncing around, uh, but it is... Uh, Important that we do do Psalm 2 here today, a psalm that is uh, often quoted in the New Testament referring uh, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, So, with that way of introduction out of the way, let's uh, go now to God's holy and inspired word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word might write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come now to this wonderful psalm, this psalm that we see is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of your son, David's greater son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we pray, Lord, as we look at this Old Testament psalm, might we see Christ, our Lord and Savior, seated up on high at your right hand. Give us your spirit, give this feeble preacher your spirit, that I might preach your word faithfully and faithful to your word, and use it to penetrate the hearts of your saints. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we continue this morning through our sermon series on the book of Psalms, and this morning we come to Psalm Uh, Psalm 2 is what we often call a royal psalm, a kingship psalm. You might recall last week when we went through Psalm 1, I said there were six different kinds of psalms in the Psalter. You have psalms of wisdom, which was what Psalm 1 was. Uh, You have psalms of thanksgiving. You have psalms of confidence, psalms of lament. Psalms of praise, and Psalms of kingship or royal psalms, which is what we find ourselves in here today. And this is not only a royal psalm, a psalm about a king, but it is a psalm written by a king. This psalm is written by King David. We know this because in Acts chapter 4, Luke tells us as much, and we will actually be looking at that passage later on in our message. So, in one degree, in some sense, this psalm, written by David, is about David. But we also know, because we go to the Old New Testament, we see that this is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. And when it's quoted in the New Testament, it's referring ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ. So, this psalm has really two layers to it. It's about David... And it's about Christ. It's about the Davidic kingship and David's rule and reign and all those that will follow in his line and their rule of, and reign in the seat of David and his throne. And it's about Christ. Now we know that this is not mutually exclusive because Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to David. That Christ would be that Davidic king that would bring that everlasting kingdom. So for David to speak about the Davidic rule and the Davidic kingdom is for him to, at the same time, speak about Christ. And we're going to break this kingship psalm into three sections. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 3, opposition to the anointed king. And then verses 4 through 9... Uh, God's response to the opposition. And then finally, verses 10 through 12, the response of the people. Uh, But first, opposition to the anointed king, verses 1 through 3. Read verses 1 through 3 with me. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here we have this image of the nations, plural. All the kings of the earth coming up against the Lord and His anointed. Now this word Lord here that we see in verse 2, you will notice is in all caps. Whenever you see in your English translation the word Lord in all caps, that's referring to the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And that name was God's special covenant name. And it referred to his lordship over his people, Israel. It's sort of a discriminatory way of referring to God. He is the God of Israel, and not the God of the other nations of the world. So what we have here is we have David, the Davidic king of Israel, and his God, the Lord, Yahweh, against all the kings of the earth and all their gods. And as you know, in the ancient Near East, there are many, 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 many gods that these kings had. So it seems like we have sort of an unfair fight going on here, doesn't it? It reminds me of the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's a classic, classic film. I'm a huge film buff. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, at the last scene in that movie, Butch Cassidy and Sundance, they're surrounded by the Bolivian army. You've got these two guys really against the whole army and all the police force. And you're saying to yourself as you're watching this, this is not going to end well. Now, the movie's so lighthearted, you think maybe they'll get out of it, but they don't. They die. But that, 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 might, be a, that might be a spoiler alert. That's not a spoiler alert. That's, that's a spoiler. Um, they die. But, but that's kind of what we have here. We have two against the kings of the earth, against all their gods. The Lord and his king against all the kings and their God. It seems like an unfair fight. But notice what this king is called in verse 2. He is called the anointed, or the anointed one, some translations have. Now, this word here, anointed, is where we get the word Messiah. Translated into the Greek, Christos, or Christ. So this is the anointed one. Messiah, Christos, Christ. Now, what did it mean to be anointed especially in the Old Testament. Well, first, anointing was an act of consecrating one to a high office, uh, often done through the anointing of oil. Think of Abraham, or, or think of um, uh, Aaron, Moses' son, the high priest, when that, that oil is anointed over his head and it washes over his head down to his robes. So it's a consecrating one to a high office, and it's often done with the object of oil. But secondly, also what anointing was to do, was this act was to symbol the empowering empowering anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thus empowering the anointed one to finish the task that was set before him. To carry out the office that God has set him to set him apart to do. And we see this with David. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. The context here is uh, Saul's kingship is being denied because of his disobedience, and now the kingship over Israel is being transferred over to David. And here in verse 13 we read... Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So here we see that that role of anointing taking place with David as he's anointed the king over Israel. So clearly, in some degree, this language of anointed one in verse 2 has reference to David in mind. He's thinking of himself. But also, clearly, as we see from the language of Christos, Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, this has Jesus Christ in mind as well. Think of Matthew 3 in the Jordan River. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, what happens immediately after that? The Spirit rushes upon Christ, settles on Christ, thus consecrating Him and empowering Him to do His role as the Davidic King, Turn with me real quick to the New Testament now. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 27. Here we have a clear reference to Psalm 2. Verse 24 through 27 of Acts chapter 4. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So here we see David is clearly in the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, talking much more about himself. But he's got Christ, the Christ, in view. And the opposition, the nations raging, the plotting in vain, we see is, finds its uh, fulfillment in the person of Herod, in the person of Pilate in the Gentiles, which really is a term for all the nations other than Israel, and even with Israel themselves, So we see that opposition to God's King, to Jesus Christ, will come to nothing. As David says, their plotting is in vain. Because even the enemies, when they think they have Christ beat... When they think they have the victory won, when he's hanging on the cross, it is an actual reality, a method that God himself is using, that Christ is using to bring defeat to his enemies. We have a lot of military here, and I'm sure they would tell you that if you can't defeat your enemy by killing them, then you're never going to win. If your enemy that you're trying to defeat, and if you kill them, that death is used by that enemy as an instrument himself to kill you, you can't win. There's no way of killing God's anointed king. He uses the cross itself, his death itself, to defeat his enemies. Their plotting is in vain. Why, oh why, do the nations rage? verses 4 through 9 we get God's response to this opposition verses 4 verse 4 read with me he says he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord holds him in derision so how does god respond to this massive army these kings of the earth that surround him he laughs he chuckles Notice he doesn't even get off get up off of his seat. He's sitting and he laughs. You would think if you had all the kings and all the rulers of the earth coming at you, you'd at least get up. You'd at least brace yourself. But God sits and he laughs. Why does he laugh? Notice where he's sitting. He's sitting in heaven. Notice the contrast between the location of God and the location of the kings in verse 2. The kings are of the earth. He's in heaven and the kings are of the earth. Brothers and sisters, no matter how scientific, no matter how massive the army is, no matter how intellectual the opposition to God is, at the end of the day it is of the dust and to dust it shall return. And it is no match for the eternal king who sits in the heavens. He holds them in derision. Really, this this gives off the idea he mocks them. Recall last week we looked at the scoffers. What were they doing? They were mocking God. Well, little do they know that God here is mocking them. The sovereign Lord of the universe who uses the universe and the strings of the universe to carry out His own redemptive plan, mocks them. And how does He mock them? What do we learn from Joseph? What do we learn from the cross? He uses the very evil of His enemies as His own device to carry out His own good purposes and His own good ends. He mocks those that dare oppose Him. And he uses what they think are instruments of victory over him as his instruments of victory over them. He holds them in derision. He mocks them. Verses 5 through 6, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Once again, clearly we can see that David here is in view. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David takes the stronghold of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he makes Jerusalem, he makes Mount Zion, the city of David, as 2 Samuel 5 tells us. So, Jerusalem is the capital city where David himself is enthroned. Now, why would that be a terrifying thing for God's enemies? Notice in Psalm 2, verse 5, this is a terrifying thing, that God has set his anointed one, his king, in Zion. Well, immediately after David takes Jerusalem and makes that his capital city and where he is enthroned, in 2 Samuel 6, we see David taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, what did the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represented the presence of God. So that not only is the Davidic king enthroned in Jerusalem, so also the divine king is enthroned in Jerusalem. And the Davidic kingship and the divine kingship are united. So that the Davidic king's judgments are the eternal judgments of God who sits in the heavens. And that is a terrifying thing for all the Davidic king's enemies. Well, brothers and sisters, this union between Davidic kingship and divine kingship finds its perfection in the person of Jesus Christ, who is at the same time the Davidic king, the son of David, and God Himself in the flesh, the Son of God. Divine kingship and Davidic kingship united in one person, Jesus Christ. So that the judgments of Christ are the very judgments of the God who sits in heaven. When the Christ, the God man of Kelvin, as Kelvin calls him, judges, his Father judges from heaven. And then in verse 7, we get this transition. Uh, We get this transition from God speaking now to David, the author speaking. Verse 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's camp out real quick on verse 7 for a moment. This famous saying that we probably have all heard and read many, many times, this decree that the Lord tells to King David. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What are we to make of this verse and this decree that God gives to King David? Well, first we are to see that this language is seen in Second Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, we have what we call the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David, and he gives him the promise that his dynasty, his house, will last forever. That the Davidic king and the Davidic reign and rule will last forever. And speaking of his son Solomon, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So son here we are not to see in reference to the biological makeup of the Davidic king. Because obviously the Davidic king, nor Solomon, David, or anyone else, was the biological son of God. But this is rather in reference to the special relationship that the Davidic king would have with Yahweh, with the Lord of Israel. It's in reference to the king being treated as the son And no other king, whether it be Saul's kingship or the kingdoms of this world, no other king is treated like God's son. And this king will carry out the rule and reign of the Lord from heaven. So it's a reference to the special relationship the Davidic king has with God. And the idea of today I have begotten you has reference to the idea of the day the Davidic king is enthroned is the day He becomes the Son of God. And He is to rule and reign over Israel in accordance with His Father Yahweh's will. So keep that in mind and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. Uh, the writer to Hebrews here is speaking of the, sup- the superiority of Christ over the angels. Verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here we see the New Testament writer in Hebrews, and Hebrews 1 is picking up that language that we have in Psalm 2. And notice that when Jesus Christ finishes and accomplishes his work of purification for the sins of his people, And he is seated at the right hand of God. It is that day, today, Jesus Christ becomes the Son of God or is treated as the Father of the Son. Now that is not to say that he is not the biological Son of God. But at least here, in reference to Psalm 2, it is speaking of Christ in reference to his Davidic kingship and his Davidic rule and reign and the yes and amen to all the promises that are given. In 2 Samuel 7. And notice where it is that Christ sits. He is not seated in Jerusalem. But he is seated at the very right hand of God in the heavens. In the heavenly Jerusalem. And his reign and his rule is not simply over Israel. It is over the whole world. Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew 28, right before Christ, is to ascend to be at the right hand of God the Father. He says this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that Christ is the reigning king, the nations become the king's inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. How? Through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. By going to the nations, you and I, the church of God, are carrying out the realities that we see in Psalm 2. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, God in His good pleasure, brothers and sisters, uses us to make the nations the heritage of Christ and the ends of the earth His possession. What a great incentive for us to preach and to proclaim the gospel. That God is using us as a means of making the nations our Christ's inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. And part of that message we bring is a harsh one at times. We see in Psalm 2, verse 9, that we are to to proclaim Christ and we are to say to those who have not yet bowed the knee to surrender their arms and to bow the knee to Christ, lest they be broken with the rod of iron and dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel. What a great incentive it is to go and preach. God in His good pleasure, brothers and sisters, have used us to bring the reality that we see here in Psalm 2 to bear. Finally, verses 10 through 12, we see how we ought to respond To the king. Verse 10 through 11, we read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The psalmist, you will notice at the very beginning of verse 10, adds this adverb now. Now is the time to be wise. Now is the time to be warned. Now is the time to serve the Lord with fear. Now is the time to rejoice with trembling. This is a message of urgency that David is bringing. He's saying, don't wait around. Don't go home and think it through. Today is the day of salvation. Friends, I wonder if there's anyone here today that has not yet bowed the knee to Christ. I say to you, with the same urgency that David has here... Surrender all to Him today. Don't go home and think about it. You'll have much time to think about it, I promise you. But surrender all to Him today. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. David has a sense of urgency about his gospel proclamation here. Notice also that David here is not responding In the same way His rulers are treating Him, He doesn't respond to His rulers who are plotting in vain by plotting Himself. He actually really personifies Christ here. He points ahead to Christ in His very character. In the very way He responds to His enemies, He doesn't respond by plotting. He responds with the Gospel. He warns them to bow the knee to Christ, to surrender their arms... And to give their all in all to the true King, the Yahweh of Israel. We see this with Christ, don't we? Even as Christ is hanging on the tree, what do we hear from Him? He doesn't curse His enemies. He doesn't shout at His enemies. In His greatest agony, as He's shedding the blood for the world, as the wrath of God hangs over His shoulders, He says, Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Here with David, we see in his very character, pointing to Christ, loving his enemies, and proclaiming the gospel. Verse 12, we read, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This language here of kiss the sun." is language that shows one paying homage to the king. What would often happen in the ancient world is they would come to the king and they would kiss his hand in order to pay homage to him. Well, friends, what do we see when we kiss the hand of King Jesus? We see what Thomas saw in John 20. We see nail marks. We see the marks of a crucified king. So that when we kiss the hand of King Jesus, we are at the same time claiming Him as the one who has taken on the wrath of God for our sins. And all those that fail to kiss that crucified hand will continue to have that wrath hanging over their heads. And their way will perish. And the wrath of God will be kindled against them. Notice how the psalm ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's that word again that we saw last week in Psalm 1. Remember how Psalm 1 began? The very first word, blessed. Happy. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, the bonds and cords that these uh, kings of the earth in verse 3 seek to, to break loose from are not bonds and cords of hate. They are rather, as Hosea 11 says, bonds and cords of love. When we would rather in our sin pay homage to the kings of the earth, God draws us, God drags us into the refuge of His Son, where we are safe, where we are secure, where we are happy in the refuge of our crucified and reigning King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for King Jesus, who is our crucified and reigning King, who has come and fulfilled all the promises that you have given to King David. And we pray, O Lord, that you would unite us to him by faith, that your wrath would not be over our heads, but that we would bow the knee to Christ and find our true joy, our true happiness in him. Bless us now, we pray, as we seek to live as emissaries of Christ, to go out into the world, and to proclaim the gospel. It is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.